This is the Collection Public Art Podcast. I'm Rexandra Bajak. My hometown in New Jersey has an annual Halloween parade, which has been called the second largest Halloween parade in America. And my high school had a painting competition with it, where selected students got to post giant paintings on the windows of businesses along the parade route in downtown. We got to skip class just to paint outside, so I absolutely loved it. Well, in my second year, I won second place and got a whopping $75. So in a way, I guess you could say that I was commissioned and paid for a work of public art. But of course, not, you know, real public art, not what the university is doing. So what's the actual commissioning process? Where does public art come from? And really, where's the money? This podcast is supported by the University of Edinburgh's main library, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary, where connections come alive. Share your favorite memories through text, photos, and or video of your time at the library by tagging at edunilibraries using the hashtag uoelib50 on Facebook and Instagram. So maybe I can't start calling myself a great muralist, but the real basics are there, right? A prompt was given, a Halloween painting, spooky scary, for a window downtown. Tons of small paintings were submitted, and some were selected. How does it really work when we want a new public artwork? When we got our new Susan Collis piece, the Brass Droplets, or the Nathan Coley light sculpture, how did that work? How did it happen? Today, we welcome back Liv Lomanek, public art officer at the University of Edinburgh, to break down how the university goes about commissioning public art. Yeah, I think um, commissioning at the university is very much a new venture. Um, and Susan Collis and, and Nathan are the kind of the big examples and recent examples of that. And there have been things like the Paolazzi sculptures down at King's Buildings that have happened. Um, they were tied to a specific project that type of commissioning um but yeah certainly it's not something that we've done or has been done quite a lot of um going forward I'd very much like commissioning to be a procedure um almost like a skeleton that we can look to and we know how it works because I think at the moment it's I think it needs to do a little bit of developing um yeah as I, as I said, commissioning is a completely new venture for, for the university. Um, and with that means that we have to kind of do a little bit of ironing out and how we actually approach this or how we do it in the future. Separate to acquisitions for the art collection, which are very much um, a case of purchasing a work and it comes into our collection, or gifting or being bequeathed a work that comes into our collection. Commissioning is much more a relationship with the artist in creating something new and with that there needs to be kind of a set of unwritten or written rules um traditionally or in my experience I've come across three methods of commissioning one being a direct commission where an artist is approached with perhaps a specific idea in mind or more often than not a space Mm -hmm. where um, an artwork is maybe um, appropriate for. Um, 
so yeah, direct commissioning. Then there's limited commissioning or limited competition commissioning where whereby again there's maybe an idea for a commission or a project or a building that's thought of and and an artwork is 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 part of the the project that there is a panel or some kind of committee set up whereby a number of artists are approached so kind of a short list of artists are approached and are given a brief they they respond to that brief and then the committee select one artist the best of of those proposals that are submitted to take on that commission and then that work is created and then finally there's an open competition whereby the brief for the artwork or the space that needs an artwork and all of the implications of that are publicly communicated and anybody any artist or creative producer can submit a proposal and again a committee then whittles that down to one usually in those cases there's kind of two stages where it's a large group of proposals are shortlisted down then there's another stage where those ideas are developed and then again those are short shortlisted and one artist is chosen so there's many different ways of of going about it um but yeah traditionally you've got those three structures or those three methods um with susan collis um that was very much uh that was a limited competition model whereby a number of artists were approached and susan's was was chosen as the, the proposal that would be the most yeah was susan's was chosen as the as the winning proposal and with a work like nathan, nathan coley that was a, a direct what you might call a direct commission which was Nathan was there was a kind of conversation um, and partnership built up with Nathan and the art collections curator for our work and the basic material kind of came out of that. Fun fact, when we asked Nathan Coley about a public artwork for the library, curator at the time, Neil Lebeter, who knew he wanted a light sculpture, made sure to keep quiet to not ask because if he did ask for a specific, he was certain to be denied it. Absolutely. And we, yeah, again, and that's 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 um that's what I mean when I was referring to this idea of the direct commission and how if an artist is approached it can be because there's maybe a space in mind but not an I not an actually idea of what the artwork would be. Um or there might be a context, for instance, like a library or and this was very much the case for Paolazzi Paolazzi's commission in King's Buildings. That was a direct commission because Paolazzi was felt to fit fit the brief for what artist was required the best because he was from Scotland but also had an interest in science and technology and progress so there was a kind of a really great marriage there that meant that he was the, the chosen artist so yeah it's a good match <laughs> yeah it, it just it's a good yeah. match exactly it works out that way there there tends to not be very with with the exception of those kind of methodologies there tends to be no kind of hard and fast rules as to how you commission because oftentimes when you're commissioning something, it obviously doesn't exist yet, and you have to go on this journey to, f- to create that. And I know now you're wondering, you interviewed an artist, why not ask him? Well, I did. So now let's welcome back Kenny Hunter and hear about who is behind the planning and commissioning of art and his own experience of it. Um, where the good things are happening are often 
it's growing out of a, a real sort of sense of place and an, an engagement with the community and I guess it's to do with drawing up a short list of people for me who are people who have an identity as people who show in peer-reviewed contexts like somebody who shows in a gallery from time to time means that they have an independent evolved art practice there's people who purely practice in the public realm don't get peer-reviewed in a way they don't get they're not in conversation with the rest of the art world or with other artists so they tend to make work which gets the job that satisfies the brief the client if you like mm -hmm. whereas if an artist is coming with a very established identity as an artist into an open and respectful dialogue with a client I think if the artist is open and is willing to listen to what the client has to say if that's a community group or a hospital or a factory or whatever it is, a bank then that something special can happen there. Whereas if an artist is just purely in the world of getting public art commissions, there's no um, criticality sewn into the process of making the work because they're, they're, the people they're talking to aren't experts in art. They don't have any... Uh, they don't. They can't. I mean, they can. They have valid and uh, important opinions about what the artist is proposing to do. But um, I think those people should be given artists who've been peer reviewed, so they're getting people who are respected in their community of artists. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I, because it's it seems like very often commissions for public art are coming from policymakers and developers and. Mm. More so, the people who really own the land that it's going to end up on, mm. not art yeah. critics and someone putting together a gallery and someone being showed on the wall adjacent. But yeah, but I think that's the conversation should be between all these people, you know, because I don't think art, if art is just serving some social agenda or, as I say, becomes some big piece of signage to make a local authority look vital or. Um, to address some social problem in some way that you know maybe art that isn't really maybe the role of art at all. Um, I just think the the conversation should be inclusive, should be. Um, I don't know. It's like if I was going for an operation on my heart and somebody said, "Oh, the heart surgeon isn't in today, but we've got this guy who knows a lot about feet." You think, well, I'll wait till the guy who knows about hearts comes back. Thank you very much. And I think that's too often that happens in commissioning public art. Is it's a conversation between the parks department, the landowner, you know, whatever the, or somebody who's, who has a kind of passion to see remember somebody famous and wants to see a sculpture put up. And then they choose an artist rather than having somebody who knows about art involved in the decision making mm -hmm. I'm not saying they should have absolute exclusive power over who's chosen far from it, I think everybody's voice is important but too much commissioning goes on without that voice without that dialogue Can you tell me a bit about 
your experience as an artist and the type of mm. works that you've commissioned, whether public or for what you've made for galleries? Yeah, I mean, I've been doing it for about 25 years, so lots of experiences, uh, most of them pretty good, some not so good. Um, I mean, one happened fairly recently was a really great model of commissioning, which was in France, and it's called uh, Nouvelle Commanditaire, uh, New Commissioners. It's as good a translation as you, as you can get. And what the French established was this route to commissioning art, which was a bit different, whereby you would have to say a central pot of money, and it was up to the community to apply for art. So it wasn't a local authority saying, well, I think we should have some art on that roundabout, or it was it had to come from the community, and they would say we they had to express a need for art, and they had to articulate that need and what they hoped it would address. And then once that up contact was made, they appointed a mediator. So we had a three three pointed dialogue between a mediator, commissioner, which is like the members of the public, mm -hmm. member or members of the public, and the artist. So the mediator would be appointed first to the community, to the commissioners. They would have a discussion and that articulation would be worked out, what they wanted. And then the commissioner would then suggest an artist. And the artist would then meet with the commissioner of the community. And various you know, proposals would be worked up uh, in dialogue with them. And then out of that, hopefully uh, uh, something acceptable to all parties would be agreed upon and a work would be made. What's sort of very simple and fundamental about that is that really that expressed need for art comes from people. Um, and so it's not, I wouldn't say it's the only way art should be commissioned, but I think it's, it was good to see it in effect. Um, especially when you're thinking about art outside of city centres, so you're talking about art in small towns, villages, or suburbs or communities. It's a great thing that um, the people who maybe don't know a lot about art but feel they want to have some in their community will be there right at the start of the journey and will come through all the discussions and stages. Right. So something truly site-specific emerges out of that engagement. Which seems like a nice way to address how, especially today, we seem very aware and anxious about the possibility of gentrification and when developers come in with the ideas and mm. very often that tends as I've felt my peers have uh, noticed as well as that very often that comes in with the different problems of well what's the message why is this here what is this really saying about the local like local community so it seems like mm. that approach definitely addresses that yeah. new anxiety yeah yeah, you're right, because sometimes, especially if it's a new development, that sometimes there is no community. So a team of designers or you know architects, town planners, and then an artist eventually come up with some art, and it goes in even before the people have moved into the neighbourhood. Um, you know, whereas I think it would be a lot better if those people moved into that neighbourhood. Then that discussion happened, and they were given 
options as well, you know, giving a few different artists to look at and allowed those artists to present to them and with a very expanded view of what art might be as well. Mm-hmm. If it's a brand new community, you know, maybe you know, like typically an artist might just want to um, create some kind of festival or, or event, you know, because one of the things that new communities suffer from is that they don't have like a village green with 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 all the festivals. You know, they need somebody needs to get the thing going, mm-hmm. and get people sharing. Whereas in an older community, you know, maybe there's something which is fallen out of use, or or there's a, maybe there's a um, historical trauma, you know, that has no conduit, you know, that needs to be somehow made physical and. Do you know what I mean? Put into yeah. the landscape. So what has uh, what I'm curious about and is almost a void in when I'm trying to research this mm. is what exactly happens in the commissioning process. I mean, is it uh, is a theme released and then submissions according to that? I'm, Okay. Uh, particularly from like your perspective and like experience. Typically, there's two. Um, notwithstanding the French example, typically you have a uh, two methods. One is a call to artists, which is usually, I guess, a public advert, uh, an artist, and that is you're invited to submit probably a CV, some images of prior previous works, and maybe a letter outlining how you might approach the commission because there'll be some details about the site and the budget and the theme. And then from that, the commissioner would draw up a, a shortlist and maybe award a small fee of about £1,500, £2,000. can be less sometimes, uh, to come up with a design. Uh, so that typically would be a maquette, a written statement, a budget. And these would then probably be drawn into, a, you'd then present them at an interview. So it's typically if you have five to three shortlisted artists, three to five shortlisted artists, and then the panel would then consider their interview, the model, budget, blah, 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 all that, and choose a winning design. Which just sounds like a fairly straightforward, easy thing to do. Not easy, but certainly straightforward. And uh, and uh, But the problem with that is there's not a lot of engagement from the artists because... First of all, you've got £1,500 to play with. My, from experience, everybody I know spends double, if not more, just getting the presentation together in terms of their time and materials. You might have guessed from the typing, this interview took place in a shared office, and at this point, someone was using the printer. The second way, which is probably the more enlightened way, is that the artist is maybe interview three to five artists just with their slides, i.e. examples of previous work, and talk about the commission and how they might approach it. And then based on that, you choose an artist. And then you give them access to that community or site, and you give them a bit more money, and they work up a fully designed, detailed document on what they propose to do. Uh, and then I guess the client can then say, well, you know, we respect what you've done, but it's not for us. But you're paid. I mean, in those contexts, I've been, you know, been given about 
say £15,000 in the past to work up a fully detailed design document and model. So that involves site visits, going to and fro the site, getting all sorts of input from various clients, various people involved in the project who live locally or, or are going to use the building. Or So what I'm saying is you get a really bespoke, thought-out, nuanced idea out of that process. Whereas in the competition one, you get you tend to get a, quite a quick response to the brief and you kind of rush something out and you're kind of in competition with other people. So it feels maybe not as considered, not as um, site-specific, purely because the dialogue isn't there. Mm-hmm. Because the very nature of a competition is everybody's given the same information. Um, whereas if you have an appointed artist, you tend, to, you tend to have access to everything. Right. So commissioning something doesn't mean getting a custom art piece. You don't get to tell the artist exactly what you want. Really, it just doesn't come down to one person, or at least shouldn't. Hopefully, through this process, you get that better site specificity, and with it, the community it's in gets a sense of ownership. Because we also have to ask, who is this for? Who are we making art for? Maybe the commissioner has their own agenda or just has to have art, but in the end, hopefully, the public there feels some sense of, oh, this public art is for me too, the public. But remember, the public isn't necessarily funding it. So where's the money coming from? Dedicated listeners, or just people who know public art, know that public art can be funded by public or private funds. So the money comes from anywhere, really. Individuals, organizations, councils, schools. They can also be donations or gifts or parts of larger funding projects. The Susan Collis piece, The Next Big Thing is a Series of Little Things, was part of the Greater Bristow Square and McEwen Hall Redevelopment Project. And a lot of cities, including Dublin, also have special percent schemes, where any new building project or development must set aside a designated percent of the budget, usually pretty small, for public art or some artistic element. As you might guess, pieces that are gifts often come with the purpose, a reason for being gifted. The university collection has a couple of those. Take, for instance, one work at Pollock Hall's residence. There's a statue of a Dr. Quan Huang, the first Chinese person to graduate from any European university, and he came here to the University of Edinburgh to study medicine. Class of 1855, he is the only student to have a statue of himself anywhere in the university. The work, completed by an unknown Chinese sculptor, or at least we don't know, was a gift from the city of Zhuhai in the Guangdong province in 2007. The source of funding can have a pretty big impact. It can affect what's possible, what the significance of the work is, it can come with requirements on the work, and it can add deeper meaning to it. Like in the case of our College of Art War Memorial a memorial to students and staff who had fallen in the First World War, funded by students, staff, and friends. Now, I'm going to reveal to you one of the greatest secrets of the contemporary art world. The art objects may be constructed by someone other than the artist. This is actually a very common thing in contemporary art in several ways, and often necessary in public art. These are huge structural building projects. You know, Susan Collis isn't going to hand-make each of the over 1,000 brass rivets, she's not out there alone drilling into the stone. Sometimes experts are needed, sometimes volunteers even. 
And this is the bit that turns a lot of people off of contemporary art and public artworks, because they might not realize how common practice it is or, for whatever reasons, aren't comfortable with it. But artists get paid for ideas. There might be volunteers helping out or hired individuals paid to do a job, you know, paid hourly to install things, but the artist makes a living from the creativity behind the project. And really often, so often, there is a ton of work done by the artist we don't see. Susan Collis tracing and counting and measuring little drops of paint, Nathan Coley digging through archives for hours. And you have to consider, too, that while installation is happening, maybe the artist isn't in the field out there drilling, but they're in town, they're watching. So whatever an artist is paid has to cover this time at the site. They have to pay for accommodation for staying on site. And during this time, you're not getting paid for anything else. It's a lot of opportunity cost as well. So let's break down what a potential proposed budget would be. Obviously, these are big, expensive commissions, often part of larger projects, but for ease, I'll say 100 pounds, whole project, whole budget. First, you need to buy materials, so that's 10 pounds gone. Then you're paying for a long installation process, easily a month or more, and paying hourly, so that's big, that's 60 pounds of your entire budget. Of course you need some insurance, some backup, so you set aside another 10 just in case. And that leaves the artist with only 20 pounds for themselves, for travel and accommodation and for living off of it. And keep in mind, you're probably not getting commissioned for a big project every month of the year. As I've mentioned, the university's public art collection is mostly sculpture. But public art doesn't have to be sculptural or permanent, it can be performance. And when your work is a one-time, unscripted performance, it's a bit more complicated keeping track of the ownership of it. I recently took a trip to Seville in Spain. It was lovely, but we missed orange season by two months. Anyway, we went to the Plaza de España, a beautiful place, a crescent-shaped building with beautiful mosaics all around, mosaiced bridges over a little canal, couples with extremely unequal workloads and little rowboats, and the soundtrack to all this was a Spanish guitar accompanied by a beautiful voice and dancers. The performers were just on the mid-landing of a big set of stairs, a massive group of people surrounding them. Naturally, once the song ended, the dancers would pick up their hats, their boxes, and make a quick round for change. They especially looked at anyone who had a camera out, who they could tell had recorded images or video, and directly asked for one euro. At first, I didn't think too much of it, just that I was worried about not having any change on me. But then it reminded me of something else. In Edinburgh, along the Royal Mile, basically the central area for tourists, right? And as you get closer to the castle, it gets even more meant for tourists. At that end, you come across a lot of, I guess, street performers. People in elaborate costumes. They sit on the side, usually somehow looking like they're levitating or something. If you take a picture of them, or even seem to have caught them in frame you have to pay. This isn't really shocking or anything. I mean, people put themselves out there like that, playing music or juggling or using whatever skill they have to make money. And if you clearly engage with the performance are obviously benefiting from it or using it, then you have to complete the transaction. It just makes sense. What I hadn't considered though, or really thought of, is where those videos and photographs go after, where that image of their art goes and kind of how does... But how do we take pictures of public art freely? To begin with, art gets copyrighted at birth. Film, music, drama, literary, visual, sound recording. Once it's made, recorded in some way, copyright. 
the author, the creator, gets some protections based on this. And this is all in the Copyright Designs and Patents Act of 1988, for the UK context specifically. There are 306 sections. So there's a reason that copyright law is its own thing. I can't really give you a perfect rundown. Of course, I'm not an intellectual property lawyer, but some things you should know. Copyright is granted immediately, no need to file or anything, and you get a number of protections as the creator, including three basic rights. The right to be identified as author or director, section 77, the right to object to derogatory treatment of work, section 80, and right to privacy of certain photographs and films, section 85. Anyway, the relevant things, in most cases, you can't reproduce or copy or make adaptations of a work. Visual, artistic, music, drama, film, broadcast, recording, for commercial purposes. Don't do it. But did you catch that first requirement with what art counts? Once it's made, recorded in some way, copyright. Recorded in some way. It has to be recorded, fixed in material form. So like plays are written in scripts and artworks are often physical paintings or sculptures, film and photographs the same, but one-time unscripted public performances? Not recorded, not protected, under copyright at least. Which kind of makes sense, because how can you protect something that's not really fixed? But for new contemporary public art, this might be a bit of an issue. In the UK and a lot of other countries, that copyright isn't quite up with the contemporary unscripted arts. And to make it worse, whoever then records the piece, makes a film, takes a photograph, whoever fixes it in a material form, whether or not the person behind the camera was with the author, that recording is copyrighted. The person taking the picture gets copyright on the picture. To read off that section too, Copyright does not subsist in a literary, dramatic, or musical work unless and until it is recorded. It is immaterial whether the work is recorded by or with the permission of the author. And where it is not recorded by the author, nothing in that subsection affects the questions whether copyright subsists in the record as distinct from the work recorded. So, seems like you take a picture of something, the picture's yours. And especially if that one thing isn't already under copyright, isn't, isn't already fixed in a material form, you've kind of done that for them, and you get the copyright. And this is really related to public art, in my mind, because in the, in the UK, we're allowed to photograph in public places. We can even photograph private property from a public space. So kind of whether you're public or private domain, you can get photographed as art. Except in some rare cases, like Trafalgar Square, Parliament Square, and Royal Parks are the only public places in the UK where you need permission to photograph or film for commercial purposes. But personal purposes, you can go ahead in all of these places. So can we really just freely photograph public art because it's in these public places, or, or even unscripted public art if it's in these public places? Can we just kind of own art if we take a picture of it before the artist does? I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but I really, I want to get into a quick little story from Germany to talk about this. In 1964, Joseph Beuys gave a 30-minute performance titled Marcel Duchamp's Silence is Overrated. It was broadcast live, but not taped. So he allowed associate and renowned art documenter Manfred Tischer to photograph the work. Tischer took 19 photographs, the only record of this art ever happening. The images remained unpublished until 2008, when they were exhibited at the Museum Schloss Moylander, 
which held the largest collections of boys' works. Soon enough, a court case interrupted the exhibition. B.G. Bildkunst, an artist copyright collecting society in Germany, claimed that the images violated boys' intellectual property rights. They acted on behalf of Eva Boys, who inherited those copyrights from her husband when he passed in 1986. The trial ended in 2010 when the Higher Regional Court in Dusseldorf confirmed the claim and ordered the images not be exhibited. They were called an unlawful adaptation of the work of performance art, making a dynamic work static. In this case, there had to be enough circumstantial evidence to show the work happened and met a certain threshold of originality. You can agree with this or not, there are certainly arguments on both sides. A lot of 1970s artists, artists around then, were pretty against an art market, and copyright is basically a way to make something profitable. But they still don't want their work reenacted, ever. But a lot of newer artists are recording or documenting their work to meet the fixation thing, and then selling those documents or ways of recording in the market for much, much money. This tends to be most about money, really. You can take a picture of your friend in front of a painting, and if that painting is still in copyright, the artist's life plus 70 years, then you have copyright on the photo, but you can't exploit without the permission of the artist. You can't use it for commercial purposes, can't make money off of it. With temporary public art, you can't sell your pictures even though it's out in a public space. And with pictures of performers, they are protected from their image being exploited without permission. It's under performance rights, which are similar to copyrights, but not copyright. Anyway, public unscripted or unrecorded performance has no copyright here. Still, don't go selling your travel photos on the art market. But I'm getting into the art market, and the art market is a very different world from public art, and we're here for public art. As I've mentioned, most of the university collection is sculptural and permanent, and according to the Copyright Designs and Patents Act of 1988, you're free to film and photograph permanent public sculptures all you want. So copyright still matters in many ways, and I hope now coming to the end of this episode, you're kind of holding on to as dry as it may be sometimes intellectual property rights can be kind of neat and really important, especially, especially when you have to decommission art. So we'll be talking about that next episode. This concludes What Goes Up, and we continue in two weeks with episode four, Must Come Down. The Collection Public Art Podcast is a production of the University of Edinburgh and the Center for Research Collections. It is written and produced by me, Rexandra Bajak, executive producer, University of Edinburgh Art Collection. Music by local composer, Joseph Stevenson. If you'd like to know more about these items and other items in the collection, please visit the university's collection website at collections.ed.ac.uk. Better yet, you can see these items online at images.is.ed.ac.uk or, of course, out and around the university. My name is Roxandra, and as always, thank you for stopping by the collection. This podcast is supported by the University of Edinburgh's main library, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary, where connections come alive. Share your favorite memories through text, photos, and or video of your time at the library by tagging at edunilibraries using the hashtag uoelib50 on Facebook and Instagram.